0: Alright, turning your Bible to 2 Kings chapter number four. I mentioned earlier that we are, and if you're here for the first time, on Sundays and Wednesdays, for the most part, we're covering the life of Elisha. The series is called God Touched, and it's really just about the supernatural life of the uh, supernatural life of the prophet Elisha. And the intention is really just to remind us of the potency available to us as children of the living God. Um, I understand that we don't see everything like we saw in the life of Elisha or Elijah or Moses or Paul and Peter, but just because we don't see it doesn't mean that we can't. It certainly doesn't mean that we shouldn't. I believe, actually, we should be. And um, the reality is, is that in some places, Christians are and i do believe this is my personal opinion feel free to reject it out of hand if you disagree but i actually believe that the revival that america needs and that i'm praying for um, is going to um, contain new unprecedented levels of the supernatural i believe the heart of this nation is so hardened against god that mere preaching alone will not be able to pierce the hearts, the hard hearts of unbelief, that God in his grace and mercy is going to reveal an elevated level of the supernatural activity of heaven on earth. And so um, I'm just kind of preparing my heart for that. If that's going to happen, it's going to happen through Christians. And I don't see any reason why it can't be you. And I don't see any reason why it can't be me. He's going to work through somebody. And how many of you know that to to the lord we're all special but nobody is more special and so we don't have to sit around and wait for the super special christians to walk in that unction and anointing i just think we need to prepare our hearts and we'll find the father very willing to impart uh, power to us one of the things that i do believe we'll see is the raising of the dead yeah i'm just i just go for it i mean you know yeah i want to see headaches cured and you know and, and cancer taken away but um, I believe we'll see the raising of the dead. And I believe because it's, there's precedent for it in the Word of God. We're going to talk about it tonight. But I also just believe if he's life and the world is full of death, and he's going to manif- manifest himself in convincing power, that one of the greatest things that he could do is show death who's boss. And the father is boss. And I don't mean that irreverently. He's just he's, he's got authority over death and hell and the grave. And so i do believe that we'll see that um i get stirred thinking about it it could be our kids or our grandkids generation that sees it on a level that uh no generation has seen in centuries and so i i don't know where your heart is on this but every time i'm preaching on the supernatural i'm not just trying to inform you i'm trying to whet your appetite i'm 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 trying to just kind of elevate your level of expectation For the work of the lord in these areas and to counteract all of the skepticism and the doubt and the humanism and the you know the the this addiction in america and even in the church in america for us to have to explain and understand everything and i would just say that to the degree that we can understand and explain it to that same degree um it may, it may not be the Lord, because I, I just don't think that we can understand fully God and his ways, but we can experience them even in the absence of full understanding. So let's look in the Word of God, Second Kings chapter number four. I'm just going to bring you a message called, The Dead Are Raised. <laughs> Real flashy title, The Dead Are Raised. And we're going back to where we left off last time, into the family of the, the Shumanite woman. And remember last time, she had been promised a baby, prophetic word from Elisha. And then the Bible kind of left us with this statement that about that time the next year, she had her baby boy. And so now some years have passed. We don't know exactly how many, probably somewhere between eight to 10 years. The little baby is now a little boy. And we pick up in verse number 18. 2 Kings 4:18. the Bible says, when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. She called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there's the Shumanite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, and this answer is to Gehazi, the servant. She answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. I want you to enter into it this way with me. This is not a Bible story. This is a real woman with a real child living on a real farm, experiencing real heartbreak, running to a real individual who was a prophet of Yahweh, and it was a real resurrection. It happened. It's a real family that looked up in the sky, saw clouds like you see clouds, Felt the heat of the same sun that you feel the heat of. Breathed in the atmosphere that you breathe in with a few less toxins in it, I'm sure, back then. But still, breathed in. And, and we have this tendency when we read stories like this, is, is, is they, they feel to us like a fable or a myth. And intellectually, we know that the Bible is true and it, and it happened, but we very rarely slow down enough, especially reading 19 verses, and, and say to ourselves, let's enter into this moment with this family and with this prophet and his servant. But when we will enter into it, it becomes more than an ancient theological or narrative, it becomes more than history, it becomes possibility. And if we'll, we'll begin to train our spirits, our minds, our hearts, the, that, that full part of who we are, to read our Bibles with the, the essence of possibility instead of the, the, the essence of history, then I believe that the, the, the things that happened in history that are a possibility now will become an actuality. And that's what we want to have happen. I don't want to live a theoretical Christian life, nor do you. And yet, we all know that most of our days are not filled with glorious drama like this. So I'm not addicted to action, but nor am I content with uh, long seasons of inaction in the supernatural. So in essence, I hope we find ourselves hungry, and if we can look at this tonight, I hope we'll allow ourselves to grow in that hunger. So look back up with me. In verses 18 through 21, and listen, all of these points start with death, but at the end, you're going to see death banished. But let's begin where the passage does, and let's just look and we'll see death intrudes here. One thing we've learned in life so far is tragedy never calls ahead. Verses 18 and 19, the Bible says it very succinctly, when the child had grown, so life was taking place. And on one day, just one day out of dozens of days, hundreds of days, he goes out to his father among the reapers. And then eventually you hear this coming from the little boy, my father, my father, my head, my head. And as most dads do, they look at the servant, and they say, will you get him to his mother? It's, 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 I mean, really the domestic life here is so much like what we might see in a stereotypical home nowadays. So the boy has grown up enough. He's not a grown, like large kid. He's pre-adolescent. We're going to find out he's still small enough to sit on his mama's lap, but, but he's big enough to communicate. And he wants to be with daddy out in the field. Typical little boy, he wants to go out there and feel like a man and do what the men are doing. And so he goes out there to the field with his father and the servants are already working. And you know you know how it is sometimes when, when as men we're busy, we're focused, we're working, we've got stuff to do, tasks to accomplish. And sometimes it can be seen as an inconvenience to have a small child running around and getting the action. And the man's probably focusing on working the land. And the little boy is there and then somewhere in the in the heat of the day, something begins to happen. It's invisible, but something begins to happen to him physically. Now, we don't know exactly what happened to the boy, but we do know that some kind of malady came upon him. Maybe it was sunstroke, maybe it was something different. But he began to complain of a severe headache and to the point where the father's looking at it and realizes he just needs to go home, let his mama take care of him. The dad's not alarmed. Isn't that a typical dad? All the ladies said, "Mm mm-hmm. That's a typical dad. Dad thinks it's no big deal. Get, and he says to the servant, go take him back, back in the house, take him to his mama. And so the servant does and then we, we go a little bit further into this tragedy that's unfolding. It never calls ahead. It can be that day and the next day, yesterday, any day, but sometimes you get into a season where one day something horrible happens and it goes further. In verse number 20, we see that it never asks permission. Tragedy never asks permission. When the servant had lifted him and brought him to his mother, watch this, the child sat on her lap until noon. So it gives us the idea of a few hours. And the Bible is just so succinct with this. It just says he died. Whatever was going on that he was sensing with this profound headache was not imaginary. The mom did what moms do. She nurtured him. It paints the picture of her sitting there, somewhat helpless, but being a good mom and just holding him close. He's, he's across her knees. He's in her lap. And then the Bible says nothing, nothing could, could, could rescue the boy. Death invaded. Death intruded. And it's very clear. The Scripture says he died. His physical life stopped. His heart stopped beating, his blood stopped circulating, his brain stopped functioning and firing, and physically the boy experienced the fullness of death. Now, please remember, he died in his mom's lap. And as a mom, she had waited for this child. This child was prophetically conceived. This child was from from God to a woman who had no child. Elisha had prophesied, and for years this mom had raised her only little boy, seen him grow up. He went out in the field that morning to be with his dad like a good little man. And when he came home, he was stricken, and then a few hours later, he was gone. And tragedy is not one to ask if it's okay if it pounces upon us. It's just a part of living under the sun, and it found her. Now, down in verse 21, This is when this woman starts to really impress me. Tragedy often leaves us desperate. Verse number 21, when then she went up and she lays the little boy on the bed of Elisha, the man of God, And shut the door behind him and went out now i'm going to tell you it doesn't read it that um, detailed right there in verse 21 but mama immediately leaps into a plan that that incorporates her maternal instincts her faith her resolve she's about to put on display some incredible strength in the midst of tragedy and so she takes the little boy up to that room that they remember she had wanted to build a room for Elisha when he was traveling through and he, he stayed there and so I, I don't know maybe this is a kind of conjecture but she probably associated that room with the power of God she, uh, the chances are as Elisha had stayed there quite often over the years that's the place where she heard him sing the place where she heard him pray the p- place where she knew that he would call out to God she may have been of an auditory witness to some of those prayers and hearing him call out to God and knowing that power was up in that room and and she's desperate And so somehow she gets the little boy up to the loft and she lays him down on that prophet's bed that she had provided for Elisha. And then she closes the door behind him. Now watch this. These are are not ordinary moves for a person who's just lost lost a child. I wanna tell you right here that this is the one that's saying no, no. No, I'm not going to roll over. No, I'm not going to accept this. No, I'm not going to go down without a fight on that. That's my boy. And Elisha the prophet has twice the power of Elijah the prophet. And we all know that Elijah the prophet raised the child from the dead. And so all of this is going on in in some form or fashion. So yeah, death intrudes, but death is going to get evicted by the end of the story. So just stick with me. So watch her here. We see death resisted in verses 22, 23, and 24. Let's just go there. Let's just take a few moments and focus on this woman of God. This passage mentions the man of God several times, but when I read her her story, I'm like, that's a woman of God. That's a woman who's got both faith and fight, and she doesn't quit. Let's get a glimpse into her mind. Watch this. And I don't want to pick this guy apart too much, but he doesn't come across as a very engaging spiritual man. The Bible says that she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. Okay, now let me tell you what she didn't do. She didn't tell her husband what had happened. It's very clear by the text. She did not scream. She did not panic. She did not freak out. She did not throw herself at the feet of her husband. But she immediately initiated a plan. She immediately went into action. And and you just see her. She knows exactly what to do. She calls out to her husband, probably from wherever she was standing. She goes outside, calls out to him. Will you get me a servant and put a saddle on the donkey? I want to go see Elisha the man of God. Why? Because she understood that her son was going to need the power of heaven. She knew that there was nothing humanly that could be done. Nobody loved that boy more than her. Nobody would have, would have poured their life out for that boy more so than her. And so in this instance, we're going to see she didn't, she didn't run to her husband. But she had to connect with God, and in her day and age, to really connect with God meant you went through the prophet of God, you went through Elisha, and she knows exactly where to find him. So look down at verse number 23. We're going to get a quick glimpse into her marriage. So she says, give me the donkey, I'm going, back to, I'm going to see the man of God. And, and the husband says, why are you going to go see him today? It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. She said, all is well. Now, let me let me just kind of put that in, in modern English. So she's saying in the middle, let's just make it a, a Tuesday afternoon. It's Tuesday afternoon. She says, hey, husband, bring me the donkey. Get a servant. Bring me the donkey. Put a saddle on it. I'm going to go down to the church. And he says, why are you going to church? It's not Sunday morning. That's the equivalent there. His whole kind of um, interaction with the things of God seems to be superficial. It's not a new moon. It's not a Sabbath. It's not a festival time. It's not an important date. Why are you going to see the man of God at a time like this? And I just like her answer because she's not going to engage him spiritually at this moment. She knows he's not going to get it. And, and chances are she knows if he knows that the boy is dead, he's not going to let his wife get on that donkey and go see the, he, he will approach it with logic, Right. He's going to come after this thing with logic. And she wasn't being motivated by logic. Let me tell you, she was being motivated by love. And so love, she didn't risk it. She didn't put it into his hands because she knows her husband. He's great at work in the field. He's probably providing a nice place for them and doing all sorts of things. But she knows, I can't give him this. He, this is not where he's gifted. And so her love turns into a plan of action. And so she says to her husband, she says, it's all good. Well, all is well, is what she says. But what she's saying, because he's saying, well, now, why are you going down there to see? She's like, it's all good. So I just appreciate the fact that in the moment where her heart's breaking, her, her, her spirit and mind are still engaged enough. She's formulating a plan and she's going after it. So let, let's go a little further. You get a glimpse into her maternal drive. So a glimpse into her mind, a glimpse into her marriage, a glimpse into her maternal drive. She saddles the donkey, and she says to the servant, and this is when you can sense the urgency in her spirit, she says, urge the animal on. Don't slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. You know what she's saying i've never ridden on a donkey i've been on a horse once and vowed i'd I'd never do that again those are big scary beasts but i'm imagining that a horse is easier to ride than a donkey so some form of saddle is placed on the donkey and she tells the servant i want you to move as quickly as you can don't worry about me so bouncing along the rugged terrain at a fast clip she's on the back of this donkey she's a woman on a mission she said i'll tell you if you need to slow down and you just see that now listen it, she is operating 100% in mother mode and listen this is only theory for me it'd be good for me to step down let my wife step up right here and she could talk to you not not based in theory but in reality about what it's like to go in mother mode uh, I'll, I'll put this in there when Landon was four the ants When Landon was four years old I was in uh, on sabbatical in North Carolina and we didn't know this about our son, but he has severe allergies that did at that time to insect bites. And he got bit two times, four, three times, something like that, by just some ants. And within a few moments, he came in. He's like, My head hurts. My head hurts. Very similar to this. A few moments after that, he, he began to bulge in his eyes and swell. M- my wife and her mom, mother mode, boom, boom. Gets the boy in the truck, drives down to the doctor. The doctor is only about 10 minutes away. The doctor fills him up with an EpiPen kind of thing. And then he, he returns, he's breathing. And the doctor said this, he said, 10 more minutes and he would have been gone. 10 more minutes, but let me tell you something. She calls me up, she's, everything's fine now. She calls me up, I'm in a room in North Carolina and, and she's recounting this thing. She's in full mother mode and I'm like the dude in the field. I'm like, is everything okay? It's all good, right? Yeah. Let me get back to what I was doing. I didn't get it. I didn't get it. Ladies, cut your husbands and your, your brothers and your, and your fathers some slack. Honestly, God made you better at that stuff than us. We can try all day long, and we're never going to feel it like you are, most of us anyway. I'm speaking generally here. But, but this lady not only felt it, but I love the fact that she owned her feelings. She didn't panic. She actually became stronger. She didn't fall down. She didn't quit. She knew if that boy was going to live again, it was on her to get to the man of God. So she tells the servant, put it in high gear. I'll tell you if you need to drop it down to lower gear. So death was resisted. She began to fight back at that which was coming against her family. We, we get down into verse 25. And we see death communicated. So this is where she intersects with Elisha, and she's got to tell him what's going on. So watch this. Now Elisha, the man of God, comes into the picture. Elisha's concern is seen down in verse number 25. So she set out. She came to the mount, man of God at Mount Carmel. I don't know how, what the distance was. I didn't research that, but it couldn't have been a comfortable or a short ride. And the man of God saw her coming. He said to Gehazi, his servant, so he sees her at a distance. He says, look, There is the Shudamite, and he says to his servant Gehazi, run at once to meet her, and I want you to ask her three things. Is she okay? Is her husband okay? Is her boy okay? Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? So one of the things I love about this is Elisha's story is not that long in Scripture, and and. Probably the most prominent secondary figure in his story besides Elijah at the beginning of the story is this unnamed woman. That there was a great and a holy love between them, a gratitude, appreciation. She set him up; he blessed her with the prophetic word and the baby coming. They had engaged in this holy, uh, you know, monogamous relationship, or whatever the word—platonic relationship. There, there was, there was no nothing unholy about it. There was gratitude and love. I believe she probably saw in the man of God some things she couldn't see in her husband. And and God is so good to meet the needs of us when that we can't get from maybe the people closest to us but God will send in somebody and he did that for her and so Elisha it's reciprocal Elisha sees her and he's like something is telling me that this is out of the ordinary Gehazi run down there make sure everything's okay so he's a mighty prophet of God he operates in the power of God he's done all sorts of miracles and yet he still has a very wonderful human heart that he actually cares about this woman And so he sends Gehazi out there. So watch this. This concern kind of opens up here in a moment, and we see Elisha's humbling. So down in verse 26, Gehazi gets to her and asks the questions, are you, your husband, or your child all right? And she says the same thing she said to her husband. She says to the servant, it's all good. All is well. And so the Bible says in verse 27, so then she comes to Elisha, and immediately she falls down at his feet. She caught hold of his feet. Now, Gehazi comes to get rid of her. Get her out of the way. You don't touch the holy man of God, but watch this. The man of God says, leave her alone. She's in bitter distress. The Lord has hidden it from me, and he's not told me. And she said, here, here it comes. Did I, not, did I ask my Lord for a son? The answer is no. She never asked for the son. And she said, didn't I say, don't deceive me? Remember when the prophecy was given to her? And, and it was a word of knowledge. And, and he said, you're going to have a baby this time next year. And she said, don't mess with me. Don't deceive me. And of course, it came to pass. Now the child is laying back on the upstairs bedroom bed and he's deceased. And she's saying, what? She's, in essence, she's saying, you can't allow this to happen. You don't, I told you not to mess with me. I told you not to deceive me. Now, let me give you a couple of things here that I think are noteworthy. First of all, this. She did not disclose the matter to the servant because she knew he couldn't help her. She waited to talk to the man of God. Uh, if you can allow me to just kind of lay this over our lives. There are things that the servants of God can never do for you. There are times where your only hope, the only one you, you must get an audience with, is the Lord himself. We, we, we are so prone to expecting many saviors, M-I-N-I, many saviors, micro saviors. And when we go to people for so much, and and oftentimes when the Lord sets up difficulty in our life, it's it's an invitation for us to press into him. How often as husbands we want our wives to rescue us, our wives, our husbands, our children, our parents to rescue us. Sometimes it's a spiritual leader, a servant of the Lord. And just like Gehazi was a servant to Elisha, some oftentimes in the church there are true servants of the Lord, but there are situations that they cannot help you with. And it doesn't mean you've lost hope. It means that you need to view those things as when when your mentor can't help you, when your teacher can't help you, when pastors or prophets can't help you, when people can't help you, you need to recognize when the problem doesn't go away, it's an invitation of the Lord saying, my servants can't help you. I want you to press into me. And so that's what she did there. So she didn't even bother with Gehazi. You know, um, I don't know, do do with this what you want. I don't know that it's wise or even the best thing for us to just kind of knee-jerk immediately, spill our problems out to other people when we haven't talked to the Lord about it. And it doesn't mean that we don't need to share each other's burdens. I'm I'm not saying that that's off limits. What I'm saying is, I think that our, our flesh tends to go horizontally with stuff before we go vertically. And, and, and I do believe that, it, I actually think it's an aspect of worship where before I run to the person closest to me that can potentially meet my need, I just tarry in the presence of the Lord. Now the Lord, may, he does, he reserves the right to occasionally use people, but I'm gonna make you a promise here. It's not one that I, I love making, but I'm gonna make you a promise. If you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, then the will of the Father is to make you like Jesus Christ. And the only way that that can happen is if in certain seasons in life, he gets you completely alone. Remember how Jesus started his earthly ministry? Not with the crowds. With loneliness and solitude in the wilderness, tempted, tested, stretched, and tried by the enemy, without food, without pleasure, without anything on the external, with nobody to help him until the very end when the angels were ministering to him. I I just would say this before moving on. The other thing that's noteworthy about this is even this anointed man of God who had a God-touched life, who gave words of knowledge and prophetic knowledge and showed supernatural power over nature. Remember, he cleansed the spring. He, He healed the stew. I mean, he just did stuff that... We don't really have any grid for, but in this moment, look at his humbling confession. He knows something is wrong, and look, the prophet says, the Lord's not telling me what's going on. I'm so glad that's in my Bible. Uh, the gift of prophecy is so misunderstood because so many people think that if it's true and it's valid, that that means that, that prophet ought to walk around and dispense words of knowledge to every situation, every time, and they just they take out the human factor just very quickly here prophetic gifting is like any other thing that god partners with humans in in the kingdom you know when we talk about healing people are like well if it was of the lord people get healed every time okay we're going to apply that to salvation well well, if salvation is true then everybody ought to get saved every time and we understand that's not the way it works and sometimes it's the same way with healing sometimes it's the way with prophetic words that's why paul said we prophesy in part and so we, we can't put this demand on people for, I need a word of knowledge on demand, speak to my situation, and it better be of God. Right here, you've got a prophet that's clearly of God, and, and he's in a place that we haven't heard him confess before. He's like, God's not speaking to me right now. And so we, we just see this humbling going on. everybody's kind of getting pressed in this. And so God's just kind of allowing the pressure, and he's not making the bad situation go away quickly. He's allowing it to linger. He's stretching out faith and expectation. Now, let me finish up here. Look at his compassion, verse number 29, verse verse number 30. So Elisha says to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff. That was a prophetic instrument, an emblem that is associated with his office as a prophet. If you meet anybody, don't greet them. If anybody greets you, don't reply. Take my staff, go to the boy, lay it on the child's face. So the mother of the child says this, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I'm not leaving without you. And so Elisha arises and follows her very quickly. I mean, this is pretty plain, but... Elisha wants to help the boy. We don't know what's going through Elisha's mind, but he he wants to serve, send Gehazi. And the lady says, You can, I'm paraphrasing, you can serve him, uh, send him, you can send your servant, but I'm not going with him. Matter of fact, I'm not going anywhere until you go with me. She knows that the power to reverse the situation is not in Gehazi, it's not in her husband, it's in the prophet Elisha. And so she says, we're going to go together. And I love Elisha. He's not too busy. He's not too bothered. He's motivated. It was unex- unexpected. It interrupted whatever he had planned that day. But he knew in the moment, this woman is counting on me to go and see her boy. I just love this lady. There's just something about her. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, when when people hear that you're a biblical Christian, and I don't know how this this lie got well i do know how the enemy propagated it but the idea that christianity smothers women and smothers equality and smothers the value and the worth of women my friends go to pre-christian days all over the world read your history books and find out how women were treated it's jesus christ that unveiled the dignity of women and, and and Christianity is the one that brought the, the beginnings of of saying to society, equality in Christ there's neither male nor female. And and and, in this place, I love the fact that, you know, people at your work and people in your family, they find out you're a Bible-believing Christian, and they just kind of look down because they assume that means you you devalue women, or if you are a woman, that you're smothered by the oppressive males in the church and all of that. I'm looking at this, and this is a woman who looks in the face of the prophet and says, you're going with me. I'm not leaving until we go together. And, and, and yet she, she is, she's still tender towards the boy, but she's determined. She's operating in a refusal to quit in a situation that's impossible. And I'm praying that for my own daughter, I see this in my wife, I see it in so many of the daughters of God in this assembly and in our in our region. I, I, I'm telling you, I'm not even asking or hoping, I'm just telling you it's coming. There's going to be a move of the Father that is going to pull back the layers of cultural and um, christianized i'm not talking about true christianity but the the cultural christianity where 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 christian women don't know how powerful and free they are because the church hasn't propagated that truth and i'm going to tell you listen either joel 2 is true when it says your sons and daughters are going to prophesy or it isn't true And so the women of God are going to be anointed. They're going to be verbal. They're going to be vocal. They're going to be touched. They're going to be powerful. And it's not even a gonna be. It's that that we need to recognize that it is. And so to her, I just look at her. I'm like, ma'am, can you time warp and come to a women's seminar here? You know, help us all. Verse 31, Elisha's crucible. So Gehazi goes, lays the staff on the face of the child, and he comes back. So Gehazi runs ahead. He lays the staff on the child. He comes back to meet them as they're still on their way. And the report is there's no sound nor sign of life. He's still gone. And so he says to them, like he, so he leaves the house. He goes back. He's meeting them as they're coming to. And he's like, the child's not awakened. And in, in other words, it's... It's the worst news, but she doesn't crumble. She doesn't quit. I don't even know if she expected Gehazi to be able to do it. Probably not. That's why she made Elisha go. So let's get down to the last couple of verses, cuz this is really this is really the the point. Death banished. Death conquered. Death evicted. Verse 32 and 33, watch Elisha now. Note the conflict in his senses, what he's sensing. The Bible says, Elisha came into the house. He saw. He saw the child lying dead on his bed. Speaks of his physical senses. And so he went in and shut the door behind the two of them, him and the child. And he prayed to the Lord. That's his spiritual sense. His physical eyes looked on a situation that was helpless. The the boy's lying there cold and dead. And his eyes, if he's walking by sight, his eyes, if he's being instructed by his senses, there's no reason to hope. And yet again, he doesn't let his temporal senses dictate his course of action. So he literally says to Gehazi and the mom, y'all go back downstairs. And he shuts the door, pulls the curtain, however you want to say it, on him and the boy, and he begins to pray. So he begins to operate spiritually. He begins to look at the situation and refuses to enthrone what he is sensing. And so he goes deeper than his senses. Your emotions are not the deepest part of you. Uh, Brothers, if you think your mind is the deepest part of you, mind and emotions are not the deepest part of you. They are faculties that God gives you. But for the born-again believer, the one in whom Christ dwells, the deepest part of you is the spirit man. And so he connects there, and he knows exactly what to do. He begins to call out to the Father. See, she went to Elisha because she knew Elisha would connect with the Father. It's a different dynamic back then than it is today, but the principles are still in play. So Elisha begins to call out to God, begins to pray to the Lord. So this conflict between what you sense, what you see, and you can apply this in any area of your life. Sometimes the facts are against you. You know, the doctor hands you something. And in our culture, you know it's almost like the default. What the doctor says, well, that's the end. If he tells you it's over, then a lot of people, including a lot of people in the church, they just, you know, let's start picking out coffins. We're done. And in our senses, sometimes you look, and maybe not everybody in the room, but I'm going to tell you, I've been there before. You look at the bills stacked on the table. You look at your checkbook. You know what you're going to give on Sunday, but you're thinking, if I give on Sunday, how can I pay this bill on Monday? And your senses are getting rocked. Sometimes it's with our children, and maybe you're going through a tough time with maybe even your adult children. And you're looking at what's happening. You see the evidence, and you're not seeing the Lord move, and you're not seeing fruit in their lives, and you're not seeing all the return on the investment you made in them in the kingdom. And you're saying, what is happening? And your senses... Start trying to dictate the the reality that you're living in. So what do we do? We start calling on the Lord like Elisha did. We engage our spirit and we say, you know what? My senses are flawed. My senses are weak. My, My senses vacillate. My emotions lie to me every day. I mean, when I'm in traffic, this one emotion that I have tells me that I'm a vicious tyrant. That I should destroy everybody I see. That's an emotion. It's anger. And I know that's not who I am. But it's something I said. And so I have to either give vent to that or I have to say, hallelujah, I'm saved, I'm forgiven. Amy, Amy helps me with this. <coughs> Amy, Amy helps. She says, well, maybe the Lord's preventing you from a disaster right down the road. And so he's made you late. So I, I don't know if I believe it, but I have used it. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, okay, I'm going with that. The point being is this, you've got to tap into something greater than the facts you see before you, the numbers that are surrounding you, or the emotions that are weighing you. You've got to say, no, Jesus, you're here in the midst of this. I want to hear you. So he does that. He, He calls out to the Lord. So verses 34 and 35. This is a little strange to us, but I want you to know there's nothing unholy about it. I call this the surrender and his stretching. So he went up and he laid on top of the boy and he puts his mouth on the boy's mouth, his eyes on the boy's eyes and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon the boy, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and he walked once back and forth. He's pacing a little bit. And he went up and he stretched himself upon him. And it makes no sense. Don't try to explain it. Just read your Bible and say hallelujah. The child sneezed seven times. And the child opened his eyes. So the only context for raising a child from the dead that we have in the Bible at this point is Elisha's predecessor, uh, predecessor Elijah. And there's no way that Elijah did not impart to Elisha the, the testimony of what it was like to raise the widow's son. Elijah had done that. But Elisha knows there's no formula for raising the dead. And so Elisha's up in this room, and somehow, we, we're not told how, he, he enters into this prophetic act where it's almost like he's trying to impart the full life within himself. And so what does he do? He makes physical contact and he gets face, face on face with the boy and he stretches himself out over the boy's hands. And for whatever reason, God the Father chooses to honor that. And as Elisha is on top of him and it's in the context of praying and he's, he's just connecting life it's almost as if it's a, a prophetic act saying, Father, I lay my life down on this boy. May my life enter into his death, and may my life overwhelm his death. And something happens to where Elisha's laying on him, and that cold, lifeless corpse of the young boy begins to warm. He feels it. He feels the boy's flesh beginning to warm and he gets up and he's he's pacing. He's walking back and forth, and he's stretching himself, not just physically, by the way. I I even like the wording there in the ESV. He's stretching himself in more ways than just physically laying. He's being stretched. He's going beyond what he knows. He's going beyond what he thinks. He's just being stretched by the Lord, and he's just allowing God to stretch him and take him out of this place where Elisha's never done this before. So he's just doing what he can do. And he, he, he does it again. He stretches himself upon the boy again, and life enters the child. He sneezes seven times. I, 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 it's such a holy moment that I try to keep kind of my warped thinking out of it. I'm like, what did Elisha do when the boy started sneezing? Seven, seven's a lot of sneezes. That's a lot of sneezing. And, and, and the boy sneezes. So if it's me, I'm like, do it again do it again man come on sneeze on brother sneeze on you know because obviously he's alive and so this radical miracle has taken place in the obvious weakness and limitations of a prophet who who was not foretold by god What was about to happen? Elisha, in all of his gifting, in all of his ability, in all of his experience, in all of his history, Elisha's having to operate moment by moment because he's in a situation that he's never been in before. He doesn't know exactly what to do. So God's stretching him. He just seems to want to obey whatever the Lord's telling him. He goes into this weird kind of prophetic act, and God just says, that's good enough. Boom, and he gives the boy's life back. And so I'm, I'm thinking to myself, You know, mom's downstairs. Gehazi must be right outside the room. Matter of fact, let's just get there. Verse 36, and so we see the victory as death is banished. The victory came not through uber-gifted people, but for people that were steadfast, patient, and humble, and broken, and and just, just being faithful to what they thought they needed to do. So he summoned Gehazi. Gehazi, come up here! Gehazi gets there in the room. And Elisha says, call her. Call the Shunammite. So Gehazi summons the woman, and the woman comes in, and I just love Elisha. I guarantee you it was a, just a tender moment, filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Pick up your son. All is well. All is really well, sister, it's all good now. And just, just look at it. <laughs> so she comes and just expresses her gratitude in verse 37. She came to his feet and she bows to the ground. Notice she gave thanks first. She did. And she, then she picks up her son and went out. I don't have any way to apply this end of the story except with this this plea. Do it again. Lord, do it again. Do it a lot. Do it again. And the beauty is this. We're told it's going to happen. We know. Jesus said, I am the resurrection of life. He that believes in me shall never die. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. So we know that theologically and ultimately at the last resurrection, we understand that it's going to happen. Death loses, by the way, if you haven't read the back of the book lately, death loses. For the believer, death loses. And so it is appointed unto us once to die. We did a funeral here of a dear precious friend just last week, Kathy Friend was her name. And, and she was one of the godliest women I've ever known, just a joy to be around. And, and, and yet she is, she's gone. Her body is dead but she's alive. Come on. And, and we're going to live forever with her. Why? Because we, we have received the one who is life. Yeah. And, and literally, there will be an element, I believe it is, um, I think it's Isaiah 14, that literally in the end, we're going to look on the devil, the enemy, hell, death, sin. The Bible says it's all personified in the enemy, and the Bible says at the end of age that we're going to narrowly look upon him and say, is this the one that troubled the nations? Is that Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28? It's one of those two passages. That literally, we're going to look at the devil in the end, and we're going to say, that was him? That was him? Now, my friends, the beauty of it is this. Um, The power that raises us physically from the dead is not something we get, it's something we have. And so I, I do know it's going to happen at the end of the age, but can I, I'm just going to be patently honest with you. I don't want to wait until the end of the age before I see the glory of God raise the dead. I want to see the dead in my lifetime raised. That means I'm going to have to go through the experience of seeing somebody die. That means if you want this, that means you're setting yourself up not to avoid the reality of death, but it's gonna find you in your life, it's gonna find people in your life. But what I'm saying is, and I have friends in Africa, and I know it's always in Africa, it's always overseas, but I I have friends with testimonies that, that literally they've been in areas and they've been with Christians, male and female, that literally have raised the dead. And so I don't want it to always be in Africa. I want it to happen in Africa, but Lord in the name, I'm just gonna close with a prayer. Lord, in the name of Jesus, for the hard-hearted, humanistic, American mindset that defies your power and defies your glory and says that death is final and Jesus is a comma, Lord, I'm asking you in the name of your son, to reveal your glory and your dominion and your authority over death by in our lifetime in this generation, through our hands, raise the dead before those that don't believe and show that your signature written in blood is on the document of authority of life and death that you, Lord, give life to that which is dead. Do it for the glory of Jesus. Use us in our day for it, Lord. May we humble ourselves. May we walk in holiness. May we walk in uh, tarrying and waiting till we're endued with power from on high. May we not be flippant about it, but Lord, may we be motivated by compassion for people, love for people like Elisha was. And ultimately, Father, let us be motivated because we want to see your glory throughout the whole earth. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen.